0: I don't think I have ever told you what my life verse from the Bible is. If you know me at all, you know I'm probably not a person that has, like, a life verse. Um, but I actually do. And um, I, it's also not one I usually share because it's a bit of a strange one, as you will find out in just a second. It comes from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 11. And the version that um, uh, is the most clear to me and says the most clearly what I want to say is the new international version. So it's not the version you have in your, in, your, in your pews. But here it is. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. That's my life verse. And actually, about 30 years ago, someone knew it was my life verse and made an embroidery of it. So I have this up on the wall in my, in my study. I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. And of course, that's all really tongue in cheek. You have not driven me to make a fool of myself. I'm perfectly capable of doing that on my own. But I just think it's a pretty interesting kind of a verse to have in the, in the back of my mind. I'm not yet sure whether I'm going to have it on my gravestone. Uh, we'll have to see about that. There may be some other people who have a voice in that, uh, in that decision. But that brings me to the letter of Paul, to the, the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. I don't know if you've ever read the, read the letter or spent much time in it, but it's, um, it's quite an interesting and unique letter in the New Testament because it's uh, it's written to a church in crisis, and that's not so unusual. Almost all of the churches in the New Testament in, were in crisis. But it's also written by a minister in crisis. Paul is very open about his own struggles and his own difficulties and his own, as we even will read today, his despairing of his own life. And I think he means both physically, because there were times when he was beaten and left, left for dead and was in shipwrecks and so forth, but also, I'm sure, psychologically and emotionally. So this is a letter written to a church in crisis by a minister in crisis. And um, as I said a couple of weeks ago here, um, the current phase in which we are as a church in Trinity, I, I am not so interested in, in, in just having dark days and dark Sundays. There's, there's more to life than that. But on the other hand, there's no question... That we are in a time of difficulty. We're in a time of decision. We're in a time of thinking about the future. And as we do that, and as we do that realistically and honestly for some of us, if not all of us, that is just difficult. It's hard. It, it brings questions. It brings wonderings. It, for some of us, it brings grief. Um, there's all kinds of, all kinds of emotions. I think that can that can be present among us. Last night, I spoke with our the, the man who cleans our church. He comes here twice a week to clean. He's been doing it for a couple of years, and he had not heard about all the events. He lives here in Broomwall. He had not heard about the events. And um, when I told him about what had happened, uh, as the usual response is, he was silent for about 30 seconds. And then, as we as we left, or right before we we parted, he said to me, um, "I'm just trying to keep myself from crying." That's a person who has no religious connection or no connection with this community. He, I don't mean just in any kind of a, denig- a denigrative way, but just all he does, he was clean, and that was his his uh, response. And through my life, as I've been through my ups and downs, I've I've regularly gone to Second Corinthians just to find some kind of a resonation in the scriptures with uh, with Paul and with the church in Corinth. So, for the next couple of weeks, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to go. I haven't laid it all out yet. Particularly, uh, I'm going to be just picking some passages passages from Second Corinthians that hopefully will help us. Put some words and put some thoughts to whatever emotions we may be feeling, but also, of course, mine some, some veins of hope. Because again, it's not my purpose to just have us be walking around in a black cloud all the time. It's also true that not every passage in Second Corinthians is immediately relevant to our church or a modern church. There's, there's stuff that's just not even hardly preachable because it's it's just not that relevant. So obviously we will skip over those. And again, I don't know how long we're going to do this, at least for a couple of weeks. But just a little background. Uh, the city of Corinth was a major city in the Roman Empire. It was an international city. It was a port city. And it was just filled with everything that characterized the Roman Empire. And you've heard me talk about this over the years, about this whole idea of empire and particularly about the Roman Empire. On the one hand, filled with riches and filled with religion and filled with wealth and political power and economic power and and military power seeking to bring this peace over all the world, all the known world. And it just went everywhere it could and said, we're bringing the peace of Rome to you. Our emperor is the son of God. This is very biblical language. It's where the New Testament gets some of its language from the Roman Empire. The son of God is coming. Caesar the emperor is coming to bring you peace. And as empire always does, it was an empty peace because it was filled with power. It was filled with um. Uh, racism it was filled with slavery it was it was filled with oppression it was filled with violence and debauchery and and an extravagance of all kinds and within that empire was this little group of jewish people who had known jesus and lived with him and had experienced his death and watched him die on a roman cross had seen him after his resurrection, and were now empowered to go into that empire and say, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. And that was treason in the Roman Empire. And Christians died for it. So Paul and others were busy going into this Roman Empire proclaiming that you shouldn't sing the national anthem. (laughs) You should sing another anthem. You should not pledge allegiance to Caesar. You should pledge another kind of allegiance. And then in addition to that, in most of these churches, was the tension between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews, of course, had for for a couple thousand years had correctly the idea we are this chosen people of God they misunderstood it as we tend to do saying I'm, I'm chosen to a special privilege what God really meant is I've given you a special responsibility to go out into the world and share my love and my peace with the world and so with the Jews in general ended up to be a closed um, fairly racist group of people who were not open to accept, especially the early Christians, not open to accepting those who weren't Jews, commonly called the Gentiles, into their Christian community. So along with the struggle in the Roman Empire was the struggle in the church. How do we combine these two cultures? How do we combine a culture where for the Jews, one of the most repugnant things that you could even think of was eating meat offered to idols. And for the Gentiles, that's where they got their daily meat because it was the cheapest. How do you put those and how do you sit at one table together? So again, as I've often said, if you think our times are filled with tension and partisanship and division, you ain't seen nothing. Because these people's livelihoods, their, their well-being... Their very life was in the balance as they struggled to figure out how to, how, to, how to manage all of these different interests and perspectives. And Paul had gone to Corinthians and preached to them and, and, and told them about Christ. As usual, he started in the, in the synagogues with the Jewish community, but that quickly spread, especially as he experienced rejection. He spent about a year and a half there. He established the church, and then after a while he left, and after he had gone, he wrote a letter to them. That's a letter that we don't have. Paul ended up writing four letters to Corinthians, only two of which we have. So the first one he wrote, we didn't have. Um, he, uh, he, He wrote it because he felt that the church was struggling. Again, understandably so. The Corinthian Church responded by writing a letter of their own. They were asking for clarification, help us understand this and that. So then Paul wrote another letter, which is the one that we have in 1 Corinthians. So if you read First Corinthians, you could read it in that perspective. Um, and he was pretty hard on them. He 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 told them they needed to straighten up and fly right. That they were messing up in all kinds of ways. That's a short, brief summary in normal language of the book of the letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul wanted to go to Corinth, but, but he wasn't able to, so he sent Timothy, his partner. He went, found the situation um, pretty bad, came back, told Paul. Well, Paul made an urgent visit then to Corinth to straighten the thing up. And Paul ran into a lot of problems there, because apparently Paul was not in person that impressive of a guy. We don't know why he wasn't so impressive, but he just was not impressive. And so he, he just had a lot of not only church conflict with the community, but also personal. Per- they just didn't get along well. And uh, actually, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul, Paul calls this a bitter and a humiliating experience. So he didn't stay there long. He left again. And then as a response to his visit, he wrote them a third letter, which we don't have. So the first letter he wrote and the third letter he wrote we don't have. We have the second letter he wrote, which we call 1 Corinthians. Get that? And then um, he, wrote, he wrote a third letter to them that we don't have it, but he calls it also in 2 Corinthians to a severe and a tearful letter. Imagine Paul, this, this great apostle Paul, so broken up by what was happening in Corinth and his own relationship to them. That he wrote them a letter that was both severe and tearful. This gives you kind of the idea of of the man, Paul, and and what he was going through. There was some hope. Some people in the church had repented and turned back from some of the stuff they were doing, but not everyone had. Uh, And there was also a group of people in the church who was... uh, very much against Paul and, and speaking against him and, and and running him down and not paying attention to what he said. And that all is the prompting for the letter that we're going to be looking at, Second Corinthians, which is actually Fourth Corinthians. So that's just a little bit of the background of of this letter. So I'd like to read for you this morning the first 11 verses of this letter. It'll be projected on the wall. There's Bibles around if you want to Look and read for yourself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Just listen to this. The affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. If I were to ask you, and this is probably not fair because I didn't warn you before. If I were to ask you to think of a word in that passage that we just read that stood out to you because it was repeated so many times, what word would that be? Gray is a theological student. I'm going to see if anyone else can answer it first. Comfort. Comfort. Exactly. Comfort is just all over the place. He's taking a bucket full of the words of comfort and just dumped it. It shows nine times in in the verses um, that we're going to read. And that word comfort is um, the English translation of the Greek word paraklesis which if you've been in the church for very long at all, uh, you may have heard that word. Obviously, it's a Greek word. The, The New Testament was written in the Greek language. And the word is composed, it's a compound word, para, which means with or alongside, and kaleo, which is the word call or come. So embedded in this word comfort is Coming alongside. It's found over 140 times in the New Testament. Sometimes uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to as our paraclete. It's it's the noun, uh, the one who comes alongside of us. It's a word that's used many, many times in the New Testament. And in this particular form, the most times in this letter to the, the second letter or fourth letter, uh, to the Corinthians. It's just a word that appears all over the place. It's a very practical word. It's not just a feeling or it's not just, um, yeah, I, I understand. I understand. It's not like what James talks about in his letter where someone comes to you and says, I'm hungry and I'm cold. And you say, I feel with you. I understand. Um, see you later. <laughs> It's a very practical sense of coming alongside in every possible way that you can do it, which is companionship, which is speaking with someone, but also in the very physical way of moving alongside with somebody. And now I'm going to read the verses 3 to 7 again. And again, just, just think about how Paul is using this word comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all, Paraclesis, comfort. Where does comfort come from? It comes from God, who comforts us, comes alongside us, In what part of our affliction? All of it. You also know from me over the years that whenever I see the word all in the New Testament, I take it very literally. And here also. This is not all kinds of affliction. This is all of our affliction. Comforts us in all of our affliction. Why? so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. And again, this is this constant moving of the Bible that draws us to God, or really, better said, God comes to us and walks alongside of us. But it's never just for ourselves. Never, ever. It's never individualistic. It's never just so that I can be forgiven or comforted or helped or renewed or strengthened or get to heaven when I die. It's always so that I can pass that comfort on to someone else. With the comfort with which we ourselves com- are comforted by God. You see, he's pouring on this word comfort. Just He's just... Pouring it on. He's opening up the hose, the fire hose, to its maximum, and just this great stream of comfort words coming out. Just as God comforts us, we comfort each other. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. What suffering could you or could we undergo that would be comparable to Christ's sufferings? Absolutely none. We share in Christ's sufferings so that through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Now remember, here's Paul in conflict with this congregation, fighting with them. He's been fighting with them for years. And it's been bitter. It's brought him to tears. It's brought him to frustration. It's brought him to anger. And he says, if I'm afflicted, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort. Salvation. You see how he moves, he moves the light off of himself and off of his own suffering and moves it to the other. As My suffering, our suffering, is for your comfort and affliction. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we endure. Our hope for you is unshaken, our hope for you is unshaken, and again, this is a church in crisis, a minister in crisis, in an empire in crisis. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. I don't know how to explain this to you. I haven't got a clue. I don't know how to... I don't know. The Spirit's got to do it, I guess. But somehow this week, as I was thinking about um, how, to, how to do this, I got referred to the prophecy of Isaiah. And if you know anything about the prophecy of Isaiah, also written in a time of great crisis. It's, especially in the second part of Isaiah, there's the word comfort that appears a lot. It's of course, was written in, either, in, in some kind of Hebrew. But some of you may remember that the Old Testament, or the Jewish Bible, about 150 years before Christ was translated into Greek. And it was that Greek version that we call the Septuagint that probably Paul and the disciples and the early church, if they read what we call the Old Testament, that's what they read because their language was Greek. So it's very helpful to go back. If you see a word in the New Testament and you see it in the Old Testament, it's very helpful, and you can do this online. It's pretty easy to go back and see, are they the same word? So did the Hebrew scholars, 150 years before Jesus, how did they translate the word that Isaiah used for comfort? And how could it be any other way, and why would we not be surprised? It's the word paraclesis. So when Paul and the Corinthian church, because they didn't have the New Testament yet, because Paul was just writing his letters, when they were reading their scriptures in Greek, And reading about the comfort that Isaiah talks about, they're hearing the same word. And I I can't help but believe that Paul picked up on that word and was picking up on those images and sprinkling that, not sprinkling, pouring it into this passage. So in order for us to get a, 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 a broad understanding of what this comfort means, let's read a few passages from Isaiah, and I'm just going to read through them. I just want you to listen to them. Maybe none of them will touch you. Maybe some of them, maybe a word. I don't know. Whatever happens, but this is God's word. So I'm just going to give it to you. A few passages from Isaiah, some of which you will know, some of which may be to you. Comfort, comfort. And you know this from the Messiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Warfare is ended. Iniquity is pardoned. It's comfort. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and has compassion on the afflicted. What are your afflictions right now? And know that the Lord has compassion on you. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. I don't know where he is. I thought that if we did this, this would happen. I thought if we acted this way, that would happen. I thought if we were good people, good things would happen. I thought that if we were a good church community, evil wouldn't be present among us. So, what's wrong? And God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her. How can you even imagine that I would not have compassion on you? Even if a mother may forget. Yet I will not forget. Behold, I have engraved you. On the palms of my hands. I'm sure all of you by now have noticed that I have a tattoo on my wrist. I had this put on my wrist in New Zealand. And it's a New Zealand symbol for the fern. Fern which in the Maori culture has the meaning of creation and connection. And I looked for some kind of a thing with meaning. And then I looked for a form of, there's all kinds of forms of the fern, there's a bazillion of them, you can choose all kinds you want, but I looked for a form that has two distinct parts. And I said to my two grandchildren, when I showed them the tattoo, see these two parts? They stand for you. Every time I look at this, I think of you. I've engraved them on my wrist. That's what God has done with you and with us. Imagine that. How could that comfort you? Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the God. Where did God bear his holy arm? What clothes was Jesus wearing on the cross? No. He, bared, he was lifted up Jesus says when I be lifted up on that cross I will draw all people to myself you want to know that God's comforting you that God has comfort for you look at Jesus there God's bared arm, bared arm is being shown in front of all the nations the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You know anything about being brokenhearted in these days? To proclaim liberty to the captives. The opening of prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year in which all debts are forgiven. Can you imagine having your debts of whatever kind forgiven? The day of vengeance of our God. And here it comes. To comfort. To come alongside all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion... A beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. The devastations of many generations of 48 years. It's pretty powerful stuff. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her to Jerusalem like a river. Another image. And the glory of the nations. Like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse. And you shall be carried upon her hip. And bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. All these images. of beauty and of restoration and of, of, of mother love and of freedom, of liberation, of forgiveness from debt. Whatever affliction you find yourself in, that's where Jesus is. That's where God is. And Paul says, we can do this, this comforting of one another. We can experience comfort and comfort one another because of what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? He walked among us. He came alongside of us. He didn't stay in heaven. He didn't stay away. He didn't find it too risky. He didn't find it not worth it. He said, no, I love these people. They're messing it up really badly. They're heading for a place that they don't want to be. But I care. And I'm not just going to shout something down from heaven. I'm not just going to send them a book. I'm not just going to send them preachers. I'm going to go. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Pericles, Full. Of grace. And truth. And we killed him for it. We didn't want it. We killed him for it. But he hung on that cross. And I say this every single time. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. And then he rose again from the dead. He transformed his disciples. He sent them out into Corinth and into Rome and into Antioch and into India and into England and into Americas. Sent them even into Boomwall. And he said, go tell them that there's comfort in their affliction. Go tell them. Even on August 27, 2023, there's comfort in their affliction. Go tell them. He came alongside us. He doesn't leave us alone. It doesn't solve all our problems. It doesn't take the evil away. It doesn't even mean you won't get killed sometime. But in whatever affliction you find yourself, know that Jesus is walking alongside. And that's where our comfort lies. So in conclusion, I've taken the liberty of editing these words of Paul just a little bit. I just want to read them again with my edits, and you'll catch on as soon as we start. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the Father of coming alongside, who comes alongside us in all our affliction. So that we may be able to come alongside of those who are in any affliction. With the coming alongside with which we ourselves are come alongside. I don't know if that's right English, but that's the best I could do. By God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in coming alongside too. If we are afflicted, it is to come alongside you and for your salvation. And if we are come alongside of, it is to come alongside you, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in coming alongside us. That's what Jesus did. He came alongside. And in whatever suffering, whatever affliction, whatever pain, whatever doubt, whatever struggle, know that Jesus is here. That's what the whole Bible's about. And then, when you have known that Jesus comes alongside, ask yourself the question, who can I come alongside? Because just as you need it, so does that person need. Every single person that you meet has a story. And every single person that you meet needs someone to come alongside of them. I guarantee you that 100%. And when you know, when you experience in whatever way you experience that Jesus has come alongside of you, then you're empowered and enabled to come alongside that person wherever you find him or her. Let's pray. Lord, we were, says Paul, and perhaps today we are, and almost certainly at a certain point will be, so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despair of life itself. Indeed, we may feel that we have received the sentence of death. But we know that that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So please hear our prayer. Comfort, comfort my people, O God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, to our world. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sin, and there's no more nothing more she needs to pay. Lord, bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the forgiveness of debt, the day of vengeance of our God, when he will destroy everything that is evil. To comfort all who mourn and to grant to those who mourn in Zion a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We trust in this promise. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will expend peace to her, to Jerusalem like a river, and the glory of nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Zion. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us. Each individual person listening right now, us as a community, our town, our county, our state, our nation, our world, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us. And so we go, not in despair, not hopeless. We go knowing that you go with us and will help us to be a comfort and a blessing to the world in which you've placed us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.